0: Hello and welcome to Pieces of Me, the podcast by Zalando. I'm Janine Matos, your host and Senior Program Manager for Partner Services here at Zalando. In each episode, I welcome an inspirational expert from Zalando to take a deep dive into our exciting and multifaceted industry and also share lots of practical tips and trends to help you on your own career and work journey. Each guest brings in three items as they reveal their motivations, stories, and what they've learned along the way. A piece that is close to their heart, one from their career, and one from their role at Zalando. Today, my guest is Justin Rao, VP Pricing and Performance Marketing, also known as ZPete. Welcome, Justin. How are you?
1: I'm great. Thanks for having me today.
0: I'm also really glad that you said yes to the podcast. ZPete is an area we haven't had yet. So I said already pricing and performance marketing. Please just tell everyone, what is ZPete?
1: We democratized the name. So I have in the division, the pricing teams, the experimentation teams, economics teams, and what we know is the traffic platform, which is paid marketing, customer relationship management, and their search engine optimization team. So we did a, a naming contest with votes. And the name that won was the most descriptive, which is Z for Zalando, pricing, economics, experimentation, and traffic just spelled out. So I think my team liked a literal interpretation of our team. Uh, but yeah, Zed Pete is just uh, all of our divisions represented, pricing, experimentation, economics, and traffic.
0: It sounds like it's your buddy Peach is here yeah. to help you if he you yeah, have exactly. any questions.
1: <laughs> you need to have a name. You can't just say, well, I have my division. You need to have a name. So uh, yeah, we have one. That's what it is. And uh, and the person who thought the name got like a gift basket as the prize of our, a voting system.
0: Today, you brought three pieces for the podcast. Can you just tell us what are the three pieces that you brought?
1: Okay. The, the first is my wedding ring. the The second is the journal of the first paper I published. They send you a journal. And the third is the first bike that I purchased.
0: Okay, I'm really looking forward to all three stories, especially on the second one because, I mean, of course, I did some background research to know who I'm going to actually talk to today, and there were a lot. There was a huge list when I googled your name of yeah. <laughs> of papers you yeah. actually yeah. Uh, wrote. But before we go into the pieces, of course, you already spent a little bit. What your team focus is. Can you maybe give us a bit more insights and details?
1: Yeah. So the common thread, I think, in the areas that I lead is that there's a high degree of a scientific component to how we do it. And so my, my background is in economics. I have a PhD in economics, and I was a, an economist, if you will. And when I got into industry jobs, I gravitated towards roles that combine the need to understand the business problem with designing scalable scientific solutions. Now, when you think you might say, well, how is performance marketing? How is that science-based? But in reality, performance marketing has to be very scalable. And it's all about driving relevance and finding the right set of customers with the right set of ads. It's a problem that algorithms are doing a huge amount of lifting in. And other scientific principles, how we manage the spend, for example, like measuring the return on investment and how do we measure that correctly and so forth. Pricing is a problem that I think people are largely aware has been solved using computers of some form for the past 30 years. But the science of pricing and making sure that is a pricing strategy, not just a pricing algorithm, that's what sort of my role is. And we have a lot of experts, but also, you know, software developers, analysts, there's all crafts that we have at Zalando are effectively represented in my team's analysts, software engineers, designers, applied scientists, product managers, they're all there because ultimately, while these areas have a backbone of sort of applied science and that's why it might be appropriate for someone like myself and my background to lead them they require all crafts pulling together to ultimately build something that's going to drive customer value what i love about working in e-commerce is that if you stand still you go backwards And and i love that because i love moving forwards at a high velocity Customers' expectations of what an e-commerce platform provides are not static. They're ever evolving both via competition and via what they see in other areas, uh, what other companies are doing. If Snapchat has augmented reality experiences for purchasing makeup products, then their expectation will be at some point that that becomes part of their e-commerce shopping experience. And that's really exciting. And we work with companies like Snap um, on these sorts of technologies. Um, because we have to always be thinking two to five years ahead.
0: And I really like how you said in e-commerce, you always, you cannot stand still. You always have to move forward. And I mean, when a very big example come right up to my mind, I'm not naming, of course, any brand names, but I remember when smartphones came out Yeah, that not everyone jumped on right away. So there were some brands who actually then were the, the big winners.
1: That's exactly right. I mean, when I, I, I've worked through all that, that era. And I, if you saw a company come pitch you in 2012, If they showed every screenshot as a mobile device, those companies disproportionately did well. And if they showed every screenshot as a desktop device. Now, in 2012, for most e-commerce platforms, 65% of sales were on the desktop, but the line of the mobile was going up, 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 up. So if you looked ahead, you would say, our revenue base is over here, but in two or three years, it will be in this other area. If I wait for it to get there and then improve that experience, others are already... Companies, even by 2014, were starting and not even developing a desktop experience. As you said, certain companies have a culture of looking along with the trends and certain companies have a culture of looking backwards.
0: I've been now at Zalando for some time. I've been now over 10 years at Zalando, so I actually have been seeing Zalando going from desktop to mobile.
1: It's hard to change your mentality. I mean, it it's more about having the flexibility to, to be open to change, you know, and then and, and when you see the, the data or you have a, a perspective that your company takes that you then get behind that change.
0: Your first piece that is close to your heart, you said, is your wedding ring. That's what you brought. Maybe it's a weird question, but like, why your wedding ring?
1: <laughs> it's a few reasons behind it. So, I, I mean, right, you can see that it has a hinge on it. And. The hinge is because I have uh, a condition in my hand called Dupuytren's disease that creates cords in your fingers. And it made it so that the knuckle and and the finger is bent in a way that a normal ring can't fit over it. And my wife, who's just one of those people that's like the most considerate, caring, kind people, she's also like super smart and funny. So I told her after I proposed to her that my wedding ring would have to go on my right hand, uh, which I don't have that disease on, or another finger. And she's like, oh, okay. And then she like went and did this research on hinged rings and found this manufacturer, this guy, I think in Washington state that used to work for a machining company. And he designed this, these rings out of titanium and the hinge is supposed to last like 40 years. And she showed it to me and it was just the coolest to me. I'm also like, I love gadgetry, you know, and I never really wanted like a traditional gold band. You know, I was just going to get it. Cause like I wanted to get married to her, you know? And she shows me and she's like, they can't make him out of gold. They can't do this. Is that still okay? And it was this like, to me, like beautiful piece of titanium. And it's this beautiful simplicity of the mechanism. Like when you press it, it just clicks and then it's on and it can always come off. Um, uh, my finger can swell. It can create dangerous situations where people that have this disease, they have to go to the hospital and get rings cut off their body because of it. And it, it's with me every single day. And every time I touch the hinge, I think about that she found something I didn't know existed because she cared about me and it was just something for me for some reason it just has always stood as a representation of the kind of literally tearing up talking about it um just how she thinks of people and how she thinks of me and i get to wear it every single day
0: i mean it's a unique piece it's out of titanium and when you're saying i'm tearing up like i like i have goosebumps because you just can tell like this unconditional love that your wife has for you and like the research you put behind because like no i want him to also have this piece and It's super nice. I really like it.
1: Thank you. Well, yeah, it's something and it's special to me. And it's something that it. I've told her how special it is to me. But I kind of want to tell her now, like, bring you the story because I'm not sure she realized how much it meant to me.
0: Thank you so much for sharing, Justin. This was this story. Was, it's amazing, and uh, a huge shout out to your wife. I mean, that's yeah, she amazing. also is
1: Lando employee, Lissa Rao. She leads uh, the product and tech divisions in Zalando, Lounge. so she's also you can inter- you can do her next.
0: Amazing. Let's see what her first piece is.
1: then. <laughs> yeah, it's better be a ring. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so once I knew you're going to be my guest, I of course um, mentioned it to some people, and it was amazing the great words people actually have to say about you. People can sense that you really care about people and that actually you also are a huge advocate for equal rights, closing the pay gap. You were not there, so they didn't have to prove or say anything, but I was like, I have to share this with him. I have to tell him this.
1: It's great to hear. It's great that I I like hearing that those things are recognized and the approach is recognized. Uh, So much of my career has been so much easier than some of the people that I'm fighting for there. You know? And I hope that people also recognize that if you see someone from an underrepresented community, whether that be women or other communities that have been underrepresented, if they're in a position like mine, they've had to fight so much harder to get there. In a sense, it's like, I feel like the least I can do is to fight for, for them, you know, and just out of a basic sense of fairness. So, I, And I think that's oftentimes harder to see your own privilege until you, until you get to that point. Like well, keep
0: doing it because thank you. it's being yeah, recognized.
1: Yeah. So it's. That's great. To, it's it's really great. And now I'm tearing up for that because I know, it, you know, people don't often tell me that's not their role to come up and say that to me. Right. So it's great that they told you.
0: So what is your second item, Justin?
1: It's so when you publish a paper in an academic journal, uh, when it gets finally published, they send you a certain number of copies of the journal, five copies in a box. They send you these and every edition, there might be 10 or 12 papers and you get it and you're hoping yours is listed first. This, mine wasn't. And the reason it was so, that I remember it so clearly is when you're in graduate school, you have never published a paper and you're grinding to write papers. And then for your average journal in most fields, the acceptance rate might be 5%. And the people submitting to those journals are tenured faculty members, experienced people, people that have many years of, of practice doing this and expertise doing it, and it feels like impossible to do. And it is really hard to do, in a sense. And the first time I got a paper published, I thought, in a sense, that I'd never get a paper published. Like, you you think it would never happen for you. And my dissertation is actually written with one of my closest friends in life, who I'm still very close with. And we knew, we, in a sense, knew it was a good idea. You know, at the time, we believed in it, but you never know. And I I remember when that box came and opening it up and seeing our names in print and opening the physical journal and seeing it with the American Economic Association logo on the top and all this stuff and thinking like, I'm a real economist, (laughs) you know, like I've done it. I've done something that I thought maybe I would never do. And as you said, I've been fortunate enough to publish many papers since, but there's only one other journal that I really... Had that moment, which was the first time I got a pair of published in what people consider a really very, very prestigious place. The rest, I, I don't even think I looked at them, you know? And, but that moment, I, rem- I remember looking at it and it's something that I'll always keep with me as a reminder of of how impossible it felt before it happened and how expected in some sense it felt for me after. But that change of that moment of seeing it and not really believing it was real until I held it in my own hands and and could show people. And of course, I showed everyone and I kept it like on my coffee table and all of that stuff. I was 26, I think, or 27. So I was, I was a little more high siding on it than I would today. But so yeah, that that first publication is something that I'll always remember.
0: It is a huge accomplishment to have something published. I mean, it was also this momentum that putting the effort in and believing in it. What was the topic actually?
1: The topic was about how people process information, studying how they process information when they don't Particularly care about what they're looking at. Like they don't have a vested interest versus when they have a vested interest in some way or the other. The way we process information, it's sometimes hard to say how should your beliefs change when you get new information? Because everything's very subjective. What the paper did was it created information signals. The way the signals worked, we could work out mathematically how much people's beliefs should change. So you could ask yourself if people were optimal statisticians, how would their beliefs change with new information? And what we found was that when it was on a topic that people objectively understood but didn't have a strong vested interest in, they were remarkably optimal. They were remarkably statistical wizards. And when it was on a topic that they had a vested interest in, when they received positive information – They weren't overconfident. They were just kind of regular statistical wizards. When they received negative information, they were systematically undervaluing the impact of that information versus their pre-established beliefs. The paper is called the good news, bad news effect. And I think of all the papers that I have published, it remains, I think it's the second highest cited paper. I think it was the highest cited paper in that journal that year. I think it was the highest cited paper in that journal for a couple of years. And so it was ended up being this like big hit paper. What we knew was a good idea. And what I'll say to people, scientists out there is if you really know you have a good idea, just go for it. We knew it was a good idea and it it bore out. You know, dig deep and think when you really have something and when you really have something, go for it.
0: So let's talk about the third item, which you said it was your first bike.
1: So I always loved cycling and now I live in the Netherlands, so it's a great place for me to be. And when I was like 16, I really wanted one of those like road bikes, you know, like with the handlebars that loop under like road bikes. And so I got a job to get it. And I, my job was I worked at a Six Flags theme park. I was actually Bugs Bunny, Foghorn, Leghorn, and one of the Animaniacs. I was in the custom in Houston, Texas, which is is hot. The theme parks only open in the summer because you know only kids go there. And after like a month of working there, I got two paychecks and I got a thousand dollars, you know, and uh, I was making eight twenty five an hour, which I was really happy to get. You know, 120 hours of Bugs Bunny later, had my road bike. Got that bike and I took it to college with me and I rode it everywhere and I took it to graduate school and I rode. I was always a bike commuter. I rode that bike everywhere. And I was riding to work one day to graduate school in the summer in San Diego, about a mile from my house. And a piece of the bike, the rear thing that holds the chain in place, broke. Bike is now non-functional. And I had to walk home. I called in. I couldn't make it that day. And I was really earning very little money at that stage. And I was very worried that that my means of transport was broken fundamentally. I live 14 miles or 20K from work. So it was not really possible to do other things. So I walked around to bike shops and I found this guy in downtown San Diego that commuted from Tijuana. I was holding the bike like over my shoulder. And I was like, look, I can't afford to buy a new bike. I need to fix this. But the part that's broken, everyone tells me can't be fixed. And he said, look, I understand your situation. I have some old bike frames. I can take every component that's not broken off your bike because your bike frame is completely totaled. And I can rebuild your bike onto this new frame. And I'll do it for as minimum cost as I possibly can to understand you're in ultimately a difficult situation. So we're going. I'm going to help you out. And this guy was so nice. And he, he walked around. There's all these frames on the ground. And he said, that red one, that's going to work for you. And I was like, definitely. I didn't care. I just wanted a bike, you know? took it and he took all my components and I just chilled for like three hours and he built the bike up and he did it for like $250. And that was, I could afford that. And then I had this bike and then it was kind of like that question you had to ask about the ship in Athens of like, if you replace every board on the ship, is it the same bike? I don't know. Because now the frame was different, but the components are the same. And I still have that bike because it means so much to me. And I kept it when I moved all around the country in my jobs, I kept that bike and I always rode that bike. And everyone asked me, you know, now you have money. Why don't you get a fancy carbon fiber bike? And I was like, this is my bike. Like if I'm riding a road bike, it's this Frankenstein bike, this guy put together and over time, more parts got replaced and so forth. But it, how much it resembles the bike I bought in 1998 or whatever I bought from World money, I'm not sure, but it, it's something that I'll always have. It shows, you know, an experience that I had, but also a kindness that I was given from someone. And so it's always, it reminds me of how people can help each other and kindness that exists. Um, And so it means a lot to me.
0: Do you now uh, in Germany also bike? I do.
1: When I visit Berlin, I bike, I bike everywhere I I can. It feels in the Netherlands, it's like so relaxing to bike. I do bike here. It's a little more hectic, but it's not as hectic as when I rode around New York city where you're like in actual like battle with people, you know, on the streets. So (laughs) I've just always been, I was that kid when you're three or four and it's like what do you want like video games tv i'm like bike 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 my wife will even joke with me that when we like go by bike shops i'm like looking in the windows you know like bike (laughs) bike, bikes bikes (laughs) bikes you know how many bikes do you have i'll have that bike with my parents i have a mountain bike my wife and i have these foldable brompton bikes and i have a dutch like city bike with a huge basket for shopping so i have like four or five bikes So like a maximum number of bikes that you can have as an (laughs) an adult, like slightly above normal, but below like full-scale hoarder lifestyle. But like, yeah, so I have quite a few bikes.
0: So Justin, I mean, the entire conversation, you already gave so many inspirational words. But before I wrap up, maybe any final words, how to succeed, achieve goals, or just overall?
1: So... A few things I think about is that we're smarter together. What does that mean? And there's a few things. Together is a big part of that. And together involves diversity. It involves different perspectives and opinions. It involves making sure everyone's perspectives and opinions can be heard. It's a feeling you have, togetherness. And when you have a team and a division or business unit that feels togetherness, the smartness comes with it. Because we have smart people at this company and you have smart people at your company. You're working with, with smart people. There's very little you can do in this world alone, and there's very much you can do with others. And when you start really taking that seriously of doing with others, then you start taking seriously helping others. And if you see a microaggression to someone in a meeting, you you check it and you you resolve it so that your togetherness is maintained because togetherness can be fragile when you're working with strangers. Togetherness is easy with your family, maybe, with your friend group from life. But if you can develop that togetherness, Then that smartness comes with it. And then that trust is there. And with trust and togetherness, if you can work to establish that on the teams you're on and you can work to foster that, it is like an accelerant for ideation. And the best partners and teammates that have produced Nobel Prize winning work to uh, social movements and so forth, they did it almost largely speaking with some togetherness involved We think of business as making money and having ideas, and it's this ruthlessness. And I think that's wrong. I think that that's a really dated idea, that ruthlessness is required. I actually think softness and togetherness is required. And when you can channel those feelings and you can channel those, then you get this smartness and it all feels easy. That's something that I think we're going to look back and as humans and say that, the idea we thought that business had to be ruthless was a really kind of stone age idea a hundred years from now. There's many ways to, to like get your daily bread and it's an effective way, but there are more effective ways. And so to promote those sort of ideas and to talk about those openly and with my teams, I've found that when we put things out there openly, we make progress systematically when we put these concepts out there. And so it's scary to do but it's effective. And so it maybe encourage people to do that.
0: Thank you so much. Those is amazing last words. Justin, thank you so much for being my guest today and for sharing your stories.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And thank you everyone for listening. Bye-bye. Thank you all so much for listening. If you'd like to know more about careers at Zalando, go to jobs.zalando.de. Our next episode is coming in two weeks and I'll be talking to another guest from Inside Zalando about life inside the fashion and tech retail industry. And of course, they're three pieces of me. In the meantime, visit our Instagram page Inside Zalando to know more about us.